When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Time to take profits. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this special edition of the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Jared Dillian, editor of the Daily Dirt Nap newsletter. Hi, Jared. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well. So as everybody knows, and Jared knows now too, uh, we have extended our Friday shows to one hour to try to help you make sense of everything happening in the global market. So in the first half hour, we're going to talk earnings, economy, Fed, and in the second half, we're going to do a deep dive, a little bit of a deeper dive on um, some trading strategies around that, specific questions you have. So you need to be a subscriber for that. So if you want to join us for that, and you should hit the QR code or link, and that'll help you get there. Uh, so Jared, happy Friday. Feels like a lot happened this week, even though it, it, we were down one trading day. It was a holiday shortened week here in the U.S. Yeah, and I was uh, I was in Puerto Rico. I came back on Tuesday, so um, I, I can't believe I signed up for this one hour thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I said, Jared. Jared just realized he's he's on the hot seat for an hour. Oh, don't you worry. We have such a fantastic audience. I know we're we we always feel like we're running out of time. So maybe today we can sort of take our time a little bit. Okay. Um, there is there's a lot to talk about because. In this in this four day week, we had a five day for some of you around the world, but we had earnings, we had a, a bunch of economic data, we had Fed people talking, we had layoffs, we had bankruptcies. I mean, you name it, it was sort of all happening. So let's sort of break some of them apart a little bit. But I want to start kind of broadly with the stock market and the question we asked right at the top, which is that you know we finished the week with a rally. Still down on the week, we saw Netflix, one of the big movers to the upside after the released earnings after the bell. Did the stock market action today feel constructive or would you be looking to kind of book some profits and sell into this if you happen to be on the right side of the trade? Well, I don't think you can read too much into um, uh, a Friday afternoon, low liquidity, you know, rally like you know, I'm bullish and I was happy to see the rally, but, um, you know, it's, you know, what's interesting is you listed all the things that happened this week between the Fed and the earnings and bankruptcies and stuff like that. But, um, the, tr the price action was pretty quiet. Like it was it, like from a trading standpoint, it, you know, like my inbox was pretty quiet. My Twitter was pretty quiet. Like it's been, it's been kind of a quiet week and today was a quiet day. You know, so the market was up, I don't know, percent, percent and a half, kind of on nothing. Uh, really, when it comes to the stock market, it's all it, at this point in time, it's all about the, the technicals. And what we have is 
this wedge that's been forming over the last six to eight months, this, you know, sort of descending triangle and we're right smack in the middle of it. Um, you know, I, I we're it's going to resolve one way or another. And my vote is that it resolves higher. Um, the one thing that I've always been told on Wall Street is to never front run the chart. So, you know, I don't I don't want to buy here in anticipation of it breaking out to the upside because that might not happen. You want to wait until it breaks out to the upside and then you buy it. And I what I think is going to happen is because everybody everybody is staring at this chart. You got people posting this on Twitter all over the place. Every time I log on to Twitter, I probably see like five different versions of it. If we do break out to the upside, it is going to be a very impulsive move higher and it's going to continue for about five to 10% in the stock market. Um, wow. T so, that's a big move. Yeah. And, uh, and correspondingly, if it breaks down, the exact opposite could happen. So it, what are the, what are the sort of catalysts that would, get, is it just time or are we looking for an event to cause that sort of move? Well, you know, we had a, we had a bunch of potential catalysts this week, but it's still not getting us out of this range. Um, you know, it could be something out of the Fed. Uh, we've, you know, we got pretty, I guess, dovish to neutral comments out of Christopher Waller today. We got pretty common, pretty dovish comments out of Leo Brainerd. Um, we got hawkish comments out of Jim Bullard, but I think, um, your favorite, you know, I, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My handsome Jim Bullard, uh, from the St. Louis Fed. Wrong way, Bullard. Yeah, I remember when he used, first of all, he he speaks more than anyone, any Fed official I can remember, it seems. But he, I remember when he was the one who was always dovish. He was. Right, and, he was. I'm not you know, misremembering been, that, right? You know, I've been following Bullard pretty closely for about eight years now. And I, back in like 2015, whenever the stock market would drop four or 5%, Bullard would make a CNBC appearance and make some dovish comments and stocks would go back up again. Um, he was one of the most dovish members on the Fed. Now he's one of the most hawkish members on the Fed. And I think the takeaway here is, and this doesn't really have anything to do with the markets, but you know, Bullard, I believe, has aspirations to be Fed chair. And I believe that to be true of Cash Carry too, who is another guy that was used to be an Uber dove and now he's an Uber hawk. And I believe that they're just saying kind of what's fashionable uh, in, you know, in order to advance their careers. So, uh, you know, his, his comments, which I think were on Wednesday, you know, I, when he was saying that rates should be well above 5%, I was like, it doesn't make any sense. You know, if you, look at, if you look at the future path of Fed funds, the only thing we're really arguing about at this point is the March meeting and whether we're going to get a 25 basis point rate hike. Like we're going to get, I mean, Waller weighed in on 25 basis points today. I want to say the implied probability is over 80% at some, at this point that we're going to get 25 in February. So the only question is whether we get 25 in March, like we're not, we're not going to get 5.4% fed funds, which is what cash carry thinks. It's just not happening. Jamie Dimon thinks that too, right? Wasn't he warning about that in Davos this week? That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. But he was. You know, he was the, he he's kind of been at least vocally. I don't know if he's sort of just trying to you know moderate expectations um, and then and then exceed them. But he he was he was worried about a hurricane back then 
you know, a while back that didn't really materialize, but he seems like he's been negative for a while. And now, now he's looking at this, but I suppose he falls into that second wave of inflation camp, uh, that, you know, that, that, or that stickier inflation, not I'm really in that, buying. I'm in, camp. I'm in that camp. You're in that camp. What, why, what are you looking at? Well, you know, the fed raised rates significantly. It was one of the fastest rate hike campaigns in history. Um, and it was successful in bringing down inflation a fair amount, but it did not address the underlying cause of the inflation, which was psychological, right? They didn't hike rates enough to crush the inflationary psychology. So, you know, I, what they what really what should have happened is that they should have raised Fed funds to 8% and drove us into a real recession. Um, ultimately that's not what happened. Mm. So I think we're going to, I think we're going to get inflation down temporarily, uh, to three, 4% or something like that. And then in 2024 and 25, it's going to come back with a vengeance. And then we're, you know, we're really going to have to take our medicine to get inflation down. So, so this is a, so let me line this up because I think this is always where time horizon becomes important, right? So, so your bullish stocks, you don't think rates are, you don't agree with Jamie Dimon that rates are going to go up that high, but you do think inflation's coming back. So shorter term, you see this window where stocks can rally, yields can come down, but then but then you got to watch out after that. You have to watch as we turn into next year. Is that yeah? Is that I mean, it's, it's almost it's almost too early to be talking about it. Yeah, like it's it's one of these things that people like to talk about on Twitter, and you know they put these charts of the 1970s and these waves of inflation that we had. I mean, it's it's good. It's good to think long term, but you have to trade short term. You have to trade what the markets are like here and now. Yeah, I think this is what gets people confused because it sounds like everyone's saying, you know, like a com completely in disagreement. Or and sometimes it's it's really just about the time frame you're you're talking in. I'm not saying that those those inflation or inflationistas don't believe it's it's still here, that they all think that's the time frame. But I do think it's creating some confusion. I want to bring up a comment that. Um, that someone is asking about already, Randall Nine. And I think this is really interesting. I'm just going to read this off my screen for a second. Um, and he asked before the show even started, but I think it speaks to this confusion. Can we discuss the retail psychology aspect of the Fed's moves? Throughout the past year, financial experts have explained that the Fed can't keep raising rates, which is true. However, that sentiment leads retail investors to buy with the mindset of a dovish Fed Yet the buying allows the Fed to continue raising rates because everyone expects them to lower. So it's kind of like the market is fighting the Fed. You know, everyone is expecting the pivot. Things rally on the pivot. But then the Fed's like, oh, things, you know, our policy is not working. I think this is what he's saying. We, we need to do more. Um, yeah, how, I, how should I, we think about what's leading and are we in this sort of vicious cycle where? I, I tend to agree with that. You know, there's a whole bunch of feedback loops going on here. Yes. And what's what's happening is is that you know the market discounts it always does, and it's going up in anticipation of a Fed pivot. The Fed watches the stock market. You know, the Fed cares about the stock market, and the fact that the market is up 500 points off the lows does make them less likely to pivot. You know, so all of that can be true. Mm. Is the Fed is there a is is, is there a, a level where the Fed just won't be able to 
is there a natural ceiling the Fed won't be able to raise anymore because they'll just do too much? They'll break something too serious and they'll just have to have to step in. I think it already happened. I think it already happened. Yeah. I I mean, when I think I think when the guilt market melted down in the UK, I think that was the point at which the Fed broke something. You know what I mean? Which roughly coincided with the lows in October, Mm -hmm. which was October 13th which is when we had that CPI print and the market traded down to 3,500. All that happened around the same time. So, you know, for people looking for this this meltdown or cataclysmic event that would cause the Fed to pivot, it already happened. Like, you know, rates going up 300 basis points in the UK was a big deal. Yeah, and do you think that they, they understood that that would also happen here in the US? Because at that time... There were a lot of people who were worried about a big break in the sort of asset managers, insurance, you know, that that area of the market in the same way that it happened for the pension in the pension system in the UK, that it would inevitably, if they kept on that, happen here as well. Do you think that they saw that as a shot across the bow and and that's what they were thinking about or or no? Is that still concern uh. still out there? I, it's hard to speculate. Um, sometimes I think, you know, we assume too much of the Fed. Yeah, that they know too much, right? <laughs> that they have an idea of what they're doing. <laughs> that was a nice way to put it, Jared. <laughs> um, well, that we know that they, that they, they have said, and, you know, the Fed watchers and the people who are deep in the white paper say that, that no one really understands the dynamic of inflation, even though we all talk about it all the time. Well, it's really just, hard to gauge what will ultimately bring down inflation. Just going back to the UK thing, and I don't remember who said it. It might have been Yellen, actually. But there was, and obviously Yellen is Treasury Secretary, but there was there was one Fed official or somebody around the time of uh, the UK meltdown said that they had to take international considerations into account. Yes, which I is, think it was Yellen. Well, I think it was Yellen, yeah, yeah. Which, is, which is not part of the Fed's mandate. The Fed's mandate is price stability and unemployment. Uh, ideally, the Fed should be operating in a vacuum to basically to preserve the purchasing power of the currency and all other countries, you know, screw yourself, right? So that's how they should operate. But from a practical standpoint, you know, the United Kingdom is our number one ally, a huge trading partner. Like they it just raising rates to 8%. And driving them into the ground is just not feasible. So, yeah. I uh, want to ask you about housing. We had existing home sales today, lowest since 2010. I know you watch the housing market. We all know you watch the Canadian housing market. I know you watch the US housing market. You're in the housing market, you're building a house. Yeah. Uh, what, what's your thought on the sector? Are things really cratering there? And is that a lead that we should be paying attention to? You know, it's funny. Um, so you guys asked me to be on the daily briefing today and it, it fit within my schedule, but I had, a, I recorded a podcast literally right before I came on and I report, I recorded a podcast with a local real estate guy, somebody in Myrtle beach who does flips and he's also a broker and stuff like that. So he's pretty plugged into the real estate market around here. And, you know, at least in Myrtle beach, you know, prices, you know, residential real estate prices, peaked a couple of months ago then we had that rate scare and they came down they're back up to the highs again the transaction the transaction volume is down we're not getting the amount of transactions that we were before 
but prices have gone back up to the highs from where they were before. So I think that there's a lot of people on Twitter and elsewhere who spend too much freaking time in the charts, looking at charts of, you know, not just new home sales and existing home sales, but months on the market and months supply and stuff like that. And if you stare at these charts long enough, you can sort of paint a picture that the housing market is doomed. But if you, if you, if you step away from the computer and you walk outside your air conditioned office and you go into the real world, like that is absolutely not happening. And it's, uh, you know, obviously Myrtle Beach is a place with favorable demographics and it's, a, it's got a strong economy. But even even in places like San Francisco, you know, which is probably the weakest housing market in the country, it's still not catastrophic. Yeah. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. And I, I heard a I heard a snippet about existing home sales too, and this can get very very localized. So if you're not sitting in the U.S., but I heard a, a something about existing home sales too that maybe that's going to look a little different from other parts of the market because people may be a little bit more reluctant to leave their home if they have a re, if they're locked in a really low mortgage rate because they have gone up. They're not nearly as high historically as they've been. Well, uh, I think they may be know, sitting in their home, staying in their home, whereas a new build is going to look different. Here's the thing. I think the bond market, I mean, the bond market always does what surprises people the most. And, you know, first of all, rates have come down a lot. Tens are 330, 340 at this point, something like that. That's a big move from four and a half to below three and a half. Um, it's, it's entirely possible that six months from now, tens could be at two and a half or two and three quarters and mortgage rates could be five and a half percent or lower. And then what? You know, this whole thesis on the housing market doom was predicated on rates going higher and higher and higher, and the bond market is doing the exact opposite. Now, the one thing I will say is one of the reasons the bond market is doing this is because of this pivot that is priced into the Fed and the short end of the curve. Mm. So you've seen you've seen rates on fives come down, you've seen twos come down, you've seen tens come down. There's 200 plus basis points of cuts priced in. If this does not come to pass, there's going to be a massive repricing in the front end of the curve, which could lead to a big problem in the stock market. So how is that? It's going to lead to a big problem in the stock market. How so? How's that going to play out? Well, think about it. Think about it this way. Let's say we get into October, November. Okay. And Fed funds, euro dollars have priced in 200 basis points of cuts, but unemployment has dropped to 3% and claims are clocking in below 200,000. And the, the manufacturing surveys have gone up and, the, and we never, you know, actually what's really interesting, one of the things, uh, you know, I was reading about today, there's, there's more consensus that we're going to have a recession than any point in history. I saw, I saw an incredible chart today, which was a chart of basically percent probability of a recession based on economist surveys. 
And right now we have the, the greatest consensus that is going, there is going to be a recession. Usually when there's consensus about something, the exact opposite happens. So what if we don't have a recession? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, people are starting to ask that question. So if we don't have a recession, then we don't get a pivot. And that's what you mean, that equities are yep. in trouble? Yep. So what do you make of some of these surveys? Uh, we had it in the newsletter, in the Daily Briefing newsletter uh, yesterday, I think Matt had it in, about, uh, I think it was from Bank of America, that allocators are underweight equities. Does it feel like everyone's underweight equities? Uh I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. Global allocators. Yeah, I, 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 I've, I've also seen some charts which suggest that individual investors have a higher percent allocation to equities than at any point in time. But you have to, when you see those charts, you have to ask yourself why. Why is that? And I think the main reason that is is because the bond market has been such a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. So, exactly. So really, like. For a lot of people, the alternative is to go back into stocks. I mean, right. if you lost 10 to 20% in your bond portfolio last year and you said this isn't working, so you go back into stocks, I think that explains a lot of that discrepancy. And if global allocators are underweight stocks and bonds were terrible, then they're all in cash. I mean, presumably that can't last because you don't get paid to sit in cash if you're an allocator. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit curious about that as well, which means they're, they've got to do something. To answer your original question, it do, when you you ask me what it feels like, and it does feel like people are underweight. Okay, yeah. like let, let's say you know we break out of this range, we trade to four thousand, forty, fifty, forty one hundred in the S and P. Like there's going to be an incredible amount of chasing that goes on. It's going to mm-hmm. be a lot of people chasing it. So uh, you know. I mean, my thesis all along is that has been that we're going to have a decent year in 2023. And when I say decent, I mean, you're going to get 10 to 20% returns in the S&P. We're going to get back near the previous highs, which were 4,800. And that is going to represent possibly one of the greatest shorting opportunities of all time. Okay. So that's this year. So your thesis is that this year, year. towards the end of this year, what about if, I'm going to ask you about the greatest shorting opportunity. But what about if we don't get that pivot from the Fed, though? Presumably, the market will start to sniff that out if we don't continue to see weakening. Is that cha- Is that the risk to that forecast? Because then, then you'd be in trouble in equities, right? That's the catalyst to that forecast. That's that's the catalyst. the catalyst that we don't see any that we don't see a pivot that we see them yeah. keeping increasing rates. Well, why, why would that drive the? Why would that? spark an equity rally or is it just that we don't get a recession no sell-off towards the end of the year oh sell-off okay yeah. sorry 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 10 to 20 percent gain and then we see a sell-off at the end of the year yeah yes that's what i'm saying so that's how you see that playing out yeah. there's a there's a big move and then there's disappointment once everybody jumps back in that the fed doesn't pivot because we don't get that recession and they are higher for longer or maybe even increasing again and then you see a big pullback in stocks yeah yeah Interesting. Interesting. So how do you, so, so you're going to, so then you've got to have a two pronged approach, right? You're going to be thinking shorter term in terms of looking for opportunities for that run up and and the timing of that. How do you time that? Because right now it just seems like, as you said, we're stuck in this range. 
Well, you know, like anything else, you know, you have a thesis, you have a fundamental thesis, which is based on the Fed or data or whatever, and the timing of it, you execute with charts, right? You use technical analysis. So it's, it, that's, that's basic that I don't know if, if how that's other people trade, but that's how I trade. I have a mm -hmm. thesis and if the charts confirm the thesis, then great. Right, which is, yeah, you've got to use all the tools. Um, even though I know that you you are particularly good at looking at sentiment, Jared, you've got to sort of means test that against all your other all your other uh, sort of frameworks uh, or tools in the box. I want to ask you about China. That's another theme that's come up this week, the, the, the reopening of China. Um, and there's a lot of anticipation that's going to not only boost demand, maybe offset weakness here, although the jury seems out on that, it might be Europe that benefits more in regional Asian Asian economies and that it's going to boost demand for things like commodities. Are you looking at how is China reopening thing into your thesis? Well, I think that's probably about two thirds discounted at this point. Mm. You know, back around the end of October, I don't know if you remember this, but there was that Chinese Communist Party meeting where Hu Jintao was escorted out of the meeting. You remember oh, that yes. video? Oh, yes. Yes. It was one of, the, one of the scariest things of all time. Well, the amazing thing is that day was the bottom for China, was the absolute bottom. So it was a classic sentiment, and I missed it. I absolutely missed it because that video was so compelling and it was so scary because everybody said China is uninvestable. I said China is uninvestable. And, you know, that actually was the point at which China was the most investable. It, you know, the market does it again. So, yeah. so I think that the reopening is, has been in the process of being discounted for the last three months. So if you ask me today, like, is there a reopening trade? Do you get long China? It's too late. Like I already mm -hmm. haven't. So we're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. What about Europe? I've heard a lot of sort of disagreement about Europe. I've heard some people say they're bullish. Some people on, on the programs on our platform this week say they're bullish Europe. Other people say, no way, they're still negative. That's completely crazy. Are you looking at Europe at all? How are you feeling about Europe? I am highly bullish on Europe. I've been bullish on Europe since the middle of last year. Um, you know, valuations got to the point where, you know, I, the, what I was saying in my newsletter was in, in Europe, it is 1982. You have single digit PEs, you have 6% dividend yields or higher. And these were the cheapest stocks in the developed world. And I said, like, look, you don't even need a catalyst. Just hold your nose and buy this stuff. And it's going to work out. And sure enough, Europe has had a, the best start to the year that it has ever had. So, you know, the, these, these equities are in the process of being revalued. And they're still incredibly cheap. They're still incredibly cheap. So what we had was we had 15 years of U.S. outperformance over Europe. And that regime is over and we flipped in the last three months. And now we're going to get out European outperformance over the U.S. And I don't know how long it's going to last, but it's going it's not going to be weeks or months. It's going to be years. 
the 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 move or the uh, the outperformance outperformance years for outperformance interesting one i heard an you know uh, there's always got to be acronyms the acronyms of the day and we know it was tina 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 till we all wanted to poke our eyes out i did hear people talking about i don't know if it's row or row because i have english friends who call a fight a row and of course we say row but um rest of the world that ever that there are a lot of places that look like they're going to outperform the U.S. That they, that 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 sort of that's moved. Do you is that your perspective as well? Yeah, it is. You know, uh, I'm bullish on emerging markets. Also, um, you know, I am old enough to remember the mid 2000s when you had this very long period of time where you had a weak dollar, and Europe was screaming, emerging markets were screaming, Asia was screaming. You know, it was interesting because on the trading floor, Lehman Brothers. Like the non-dollar salespeople were killing it. You know, even me as an ETF trader, I got sent on a marketing trip to Europe, you know, like as the trader, you know, so that kind of tells you what, you know, how in favor European equities were at the time. Yeah. Um, there's always, do you feel like it's a, you know, in the past, when you thought about that, you had to take in consideration certain risks, especially if you were looking at emerging markets. Is that still the case or were the valuations so compelling in some of these places that you can kind of go shopping without too much worry about that? Or do you have to think about currency risk, political risk, all the things that usually go along with emerging? Well, you know, it's it's funny you ask that. I got, I got an interesting email from uh, a Brazilian guy today. We were talking about Brazil and I don't want to go into too much detail, but um, you know, the, the sort of the narrative around Lula getting reelected is that, you know, he he was it was a 51 49 um, reelection margin and he doesn't have much of a mandate and he has to govern from the center. And what he was telling me was, you know, some of the things he was doing, he's 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 off to a bad start. He's not really governing from the center. And he was sort of thinking out loud and talking about the possibility of you know, Brazil turning into an Argentina or Venezuela or something like that. I mean, he's a right wing guy. So, you know, these are the things he thinks about. Um, but, you know, it, it, it kind of made me think about it because like it's, you know, even in Brazil, it's almost already priced in. I mean, you have stocks with 20 percent dividend yields, you know, so like even if that turns out to be the base case, like it's still it's hard to be any more bearish on Brazil or emerging markets generally. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. We've got a lot of good questions coming in on crypto, some more specifics on housing, uh, and um, and some strategies which we're going to get to in a minute. If I'm if I'm sort of taking this all, Jared, um, I think we're we're getting a pretty good idea of your operating thesis right now. Um, but it sounds like right now we're stuck in a range, uh, and and you're kind of waiting for that catalyst. But there will be one, and you do see some pretty big upside for U.S. equities, but only then to sort of set up for a a sharp downturn later in the year, which you need to be ready for. Um, which will make a great shorting opportunity. You're, but you're bullish emerging markets. You're bullish Europe, as we just talked about, for valuation reasons. Uh, the, but not so much China because that reopening has already been priced in. Yep, that's all right. Um, want to ask you before we go about? I, I don't want to call it emerging market, but an opportunity. You just came back from Puerto Rico. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trip to Puerto Rico. What were your thoughts? What's happening there? So I'd never been to Puerto Rico before, which is kind of weird. Um, 
there is a huge amount of money flowing. Right, because Puerto Rico is like a 40 minute flight from your house or something, right? I mean, it's, it's, well, it's really actually, cool. I, I, got, I, I had to go Charleston to Miami, Miami okay. to Puerto Rico. So it's, it's altogether, it's about three or four hours. Okay. Um, so if I were to ask you what the per capita GDP of Puerto Rico is, what would you say? What I'm going to say first is I'm going to guess, but we're just about to the half hour. So just for those oh. who are going to who are who are not going to be able to join us, hit the QR code, hit the link, and you can continue on in the discussion with us as we um, dig in a little bit deeper, including uh, some of the some of the opportunity. We're going to do Puerto Rico v uh, the U.S. and see if Puerto Rico might outperform. It's part of the U.S. as we know, but not not a full state yet. But uh, but go ahead and hit that link. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.